I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Daniel Strain. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, September 1st, 2015. Coming up, Eric Holst discusses how habitat exchanges are a new conservation tool that could make it economical for ranchers and other landowners to help protect species such as the greater sagegrass. And we'll talk to forest ecologist Brian Harvey about the wild wildfires blazing across Washington and Oregon and why they may be a sign of things to come for the West. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Nearly two years ago, the historic December 2013 storm triggered widespread flooding across Colorado's Front Range. It eroded the equivalent of hundreds or even as much as 1,000 years worth of accumulated sediment from the foothills west of, Den- of Boulder. That's what researchers at the University of Colorado have discovered. The results emphasize how erosion is not always a slow and steady process, but rather can be dominated by sudden rapid bursts due to extreme weather events. According to co-author Suzanne Anderson, a researcher at the Institute for Alpine and Arctic Research here in Boulder, the long-term erosion rate in this area is about two-tenths of an inch per century. That's less than the thickness of a human hair per year. But it takes a large storm to mobilize accumulated sediments in a way that we can measure directly. Compared to the long-term erosion measurements, the amount of sediment transported off the slopes in this one event means that these large events can't happen frequently. The results of the study were published in the journal Geology. The science world is mourning the death of Oliver Sacks, a writer and neurologist who penned 13 books about his life and the human brain. Sachs was a professor at the New York University School of Medicine, but he was more well-known for the humane stories he wrote about his patients. They included a surgeon with Tourette syndrome and a painter who lost the ability to see color after a car crash. In his 1985 book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, Sachs wrote, In examining disease, we gain wisdom about anatomy and physiology and biology. In examining the person with disease, we gain wisdom about life. Sachs, who announced earlier this year in the New York Times that he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, died Sunday. He was 82. Listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. Whether you've laid eyes on a greater sage grouse or not, you may have heard that this chicken like bird is definitely ruffling feathers in Washington. September 30th is the deadline for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to decide whether or not to list the grouse under the Endangered Species Act. The bird's populations have plummeted, and it has lost nearly half of its native habitat in the past couple of decades. More than a third of the sage-grouse range is on private land. And that explains why so many ranchers, oil and gas developers, and other landowners have been scrambling to keep the grouse from getting listed. A federal listing of the grouse would slap much tighter restrictions on land use. The Environmental Defense Fund is one of the several several environmental organizations that are trying to help come up with ways to preserve the sage-grouse and its habitat without cramping the livelihood of ranchers and other landowners. One of the newest and most promising voluntary tools is called Habitat Exchanges. They're marketplaces with buyers and sellers of conservation credits. 
Eric Holst is one of the designers of these exchanges, both for the greater sage-grouse and other species. He's Associate Vice President of EDF's Working Lands Program, and he joins us via phone from his office in Sacramento, California. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with um, saying, so this would be an interesting topic anytime these emerging habitat exchanges, but right now we're at a critical juncture with this, as I mentioned before, the September 30th deadline for the Fish and Wildlife Service to decide whether to list the grouse or not. So why is this such a big deal, this context? Yeah, I would say in large part because the the greater sage-grouse covers such a large range in the U.S., and it it touches on the northwest corner of of Colorado. uh, Wyoming is the, is the state that has the the, the most land uh, in sage grouse habitat, but it hits Montana, Idaho, Utah, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, a little chunk of California. So it, the, the stakes are high, and it's also an area that, um, first of all, it's you know it's the great wide open spaces of America. It's one of the most intact habitats, but it's also uh, uh, you know prime territory for oil and gas development, some wind development. So there's you know sort of this classic conflict between a declining species and economic interests. Yeah, and Colorado itself, I know you said Wyoming is the largest um, habitat area, but Colorado is pretty large as well, right? Yeah, the, the, there are really important populations up in Moffat County uh, in, in the in the kind of high, high desert corner of, of Colorado. And it's important not only because of the habitat, but also uh, because Colorado has taken leadership in development of some innovative tools like the Habitat Exchange. Yeah, so describe what they are. I know they have actually not launched yet, but what they are and what they're modeled after, what they're designed to do. So, so the, the premise here is that uh, anyone interested in conservation could use a habitat exchange to, uh, to make a connection with a rancher or a farmer or a landowner willing to provide conservation services. Um, that, that interested party might be a government, might, uh, you know, some state governments, Montana, for example, has allocated funds to uh, purchase conservation services on on uh, private land, um, but that that interest could also be a uh, industry that's seeking to either voluntarily or uh, because they're compelled to under the Endangered Species Act uh, purchase what are called offsets or compensatory mitigation. So the the idea is under under endangered species law, if you have an impact on a habitat for a listed species, you're required to offset that impact at a greater than one-to-one ratio. So the buyer could also be an energy company seeking to, to offset their impact to habitat. So Habitat Exchange simply provides that mechanism by which the buyers can, can easily find the sellers and where the, the, the transaction is highly accountable to uh, the public into the regulatory agencies and uh, precisely quantified. Interesting. So let's say in Colorado where the first one is going to launch, right? Didn't you say by, by the end of the year or so? Yeah, Governor Hickenlooper has issued an executive order several months ago calling for the establishment of Habitat Exchange in Colorado by the end of this year. So bring us right down to the ground. Let's say I'm an oil or gas developer. And I've got a lot of well pads, a lot of trucks that have caused a lot of damage to the habitat, maybe maybe not killed actual species. How would I um, offset my sins and actually have a net gain? So the, the idea is that th- there's a, a tool that's embedded within a habitat exchange, which is uh, called a habitat quantification tool. Uh, consider it something like uh, an appraisal tool for, for real estate. It allows you to judge the value of the habitat that's in question. 
And so if you're an energy company that's going to have impact on the land and you either voluntarily or mandatorily uh, are going to offset that impact, you would, you would apply the, the quantification tool to your land to understand what's the, the decline in habitat quality that, that your project would, uh, would create. And then you, you, there's a quantified decline and then a number of debits assigned. So, so um, the, the debits are equivalent to the, to the value of habitat loss. And then you would go to a habitat exchange, and which would be populated with credits. The credits would be generated by typically ranchers or farmers or any other landowner that has a willingness to provide habitat services. Um, and those credits would be quantified by the same tool. So they, so they have would credits be have because they've done a net positive already, and that constitutes they've, they've a credit. Taken, they've taken actions on their land that would increase the value of habitat, and those actions could be uh, restoration, removal of invasive species. Um, and in addition, there's a commitment to a, a time frame for the conservation or the restoration that is underway. So that might be a 40- or 50-year commitment, or it might be a perpetual commitment that's governed by a conservation easement. So the, the values of the credits and the values of the debits are adjusted based on the scientific review of the property and a legal review of the protections that are offered on the property. And then the exchange sort of ma ma makes the match, makes the marriage between those, the, the credit buyer and the credit and the debit holder. It sounds like an accountant's dream and something super complicated for actual land managers and biologists and folks like you, but that's what you're paid to do, right? Well, you know, we think it's an advance in conservation practice. I think there's a, a lot of this kind of activity has been underway for, for several decades since the passage of the Endangered Species Act, and there are similar tools embedded in other federal and state environmental regulations. The Clean Water Act has a similar mechanism for purchasing of uh, stream, uh, stream mitigation credits or wetland mitigation credits. So it's, we, we consider this to be sort of the next generation where you have a, a, a more precise quantification tool um, a, a sort of more uh, a, a disciplined marketplace and, and one where, frankly, the costs are lower. Sometimes the, the transaction costs associated with this type of a market can, uh, can be um, a barrier to the participation of sort of regular farmers and ranchers, folks that don't have, you know, lawyers on staff. So, so what we're trying to do here is establish a lot of the rules in advance so that um, you know, your sort of average farmer, rancher, forest landowner in, in a place like Colorado or any other state could participate quite easily. So, ultimately, even though it looks more like the carrot than the stick, who, like, where does the buck stop? Is it still the Fish and Wildlife Service or the Bureau of Land Management who's going to be um, account, not accounting, but actually punishing and enforcing? Yeah. So, it, you know, it. it the answer kind of depends on what decision is made at the end of the month by the Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, with regard to the listing. If the species is listed, then uh, then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is sort of is the governing authority. Um, if they elect to not list the species, there's still several protections in place. Uh, some states have issued um, sort of equivalent, um, sort of Endangered Species Act equivalents that require mitigation for... Um, or, or offsets for impact to greater sage-grouse habitat. And it's very likely that the U.S. Bureau of, of Land Management, which is the largest land manager in this geography, will require uh, offsets to impacts on, that, are, that are happening on BLM land or uh, on uh, uh, land overlying BLM mineral rights. Interesting. So I think people are 
somewhat familiar with the concept of conservation easements, where you just put land out in perpetuity. And why would a rancher do this as opposed to that? Well, it's, it's actually not necessarily a this or that. The, the easement may be a tool that's applied in a habitat exchange if the conservation is per- permanent. So an easement is sort of the most efficient, most durable legal tool for protecting land in perpetuity. Um, there, there's going to be a type of product offered by habitat exchange, which is a term-limited um, conservation commitment. It might be 30 or 40 years, in which case there would be a different a legal mechanism to protect that property for that period of time. And that's uh, and that's not just a loophole. I know that's been one of the issues with the previous like carbon markets where if it wasn't if it couldn't be defined as permanent, then it looked like a pretty leaky system. Yeah. Yeah, so the the rules of an exchange would require that if if the impact to habitat is permanent, it would have to be offset with a permanent credit. Um, and that permanent credit would be governed by a conservation easement. If the impact is temporary, um, in, in other words, there are some, some category of impacts that can be reversed. Uh, an example would be if you're burying a pipeline through sage-grouse habitat, you might take out habitat for a period of time, but there's a period of time over which it might be restored. Uh, so the regulatory agency in this case might allow offsets of temporary impacts with temporary credits. So in that particular case, it's not a loophole. It's simply, uh, you know, the, the, the duration of the credit has to meet the duration of the impact. And if the impact is permanent, then the credit has to be permanent. I see. So we just have time for one more. I just want to ask, um, sure. what's your greatest hope, like best case scenario? Well, the, our, our, my greatest hope is, is, is centered around the recovery of the greater sage-grouse. I think, uh, you know, Endangered Species Act listings become highly politicized, highly sensitive, um, you know, jobs are at stake. It's, it's, it's a very difficult decision that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has. Um, the, the best way to avoid that is to restore populations. And what we know is that landowners throughout the West are willing to harbor the species on their property. It's, it's compatible with many of the traditional land uses, uh, particularly grazing cattle. Um, so if, if, you know, our hope is that we can all work together here to get populations back on a growth path and that that would provide the, um, the impetus to avoid listing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Eric. Thank you. That was Eric Holst of the Environmental Defense Fund talking with us about the role that habitat exchanges can play in protecting landscapes and wildlife such as the greater sage-grouse. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Daniel Strain. This summer, fires have raged across much of the northwestern United States. The towering blazes, many of which are nowhere near being contained, have already charred more than 2 million acres of land. As the website Climate Central reports, a smoky haze now hangs over attractions like Glacier National Park in Montana. 
It's a story that's becoming increasingly common. Big fires like those now surging across the Northwest are erupting more often than they did just decades ago, scientists say. And many place the blame on climate change. Our next guest, Brian Harvey, is a forest ecologist at the University of Colorado Boulder who studies the causes and consequences of extreme fires. He's here today to talk to us about why wildfires have grown more frequent in recent years and what that means for the recovery of the nation's forests. Dr. Harvey, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks, Dan. Glad to be here. So as a scientist who studies the aftermath of wildfires, can you tell me what is it like to be in a forest that has just recently burned? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And like you said in the intro, particularly given the recent news about wildfires throughout the western um, half of North America right now. So often, and for good reason, our collective attention is on the immediate effects and the immediate threat of wildfire to society. But what those fires actually mean for forest ecosystems is that is often an afterthought in society's mind. And one of the focal areas of my research is just that. As a scientist, I go in after the smoke clears, after one, maybe five, maybe 20 years after the fire, and look around and see what these areas look like and collect data to better understand how these ecosystems respond to wildfires. And often in the reports of recently burned areas, you'll hear them described as things like blackened moonscapes, which give the impression that they're these lifeless zones and, and potentially ecologically imperiled. For most fire-prone forests in Western North America, this actually couldn't be further from the truth. Um, for example, when you hear something like 100,000 acres have burned, I think a lot of people have this image of that entire area is this homogenous blackened area. Um, but in fact, there's this really beautiful mosaic of burned and unburned patches within that that's really important for how that ecosystem responds. And even in those most severely burned areas, there's many, planty, many plant and animal species that are cued to the conditions of severe wildfire. For example, there are wood boring beetles, bark beetle, um, woodpeckers that come in, wildflowers, tree seedlings, all of these things are cued to those conditions. Right, which gets to the point that fires can be an important part of the lives of forests. Exactly, yeah. So, um, and again, this is, this is a really important point because when we think about how forests have evolved, the species have evolved and adapted to wildfire, um, it's important to think about forests not all being the same in their relationship with fire. And I can sort of take us on a very quick virtual tour of the forests that if we were to walk right outside the studio here and go up the mountains from Boulder, what that might look like. So down here in Boulder, around the Flatirons, Chautauqua Park, we have forests that are pr pretty much characterized by ponderosa pine trees. So these are the big thick bark trees that have evolved with frequent wildfires that weren't necessarily severe tree-killing wildfires every time they would come through. And that adaptation of thick bark has been a response to that sort of typical fire regime. These forests historically with those frequent fires that would have occurred because it's typically warm and dry every summer down here would have cleared out the understory and created this sort of open stand structure where the crowns maybe wouldn't have even touched in these trees that are in these forests. If we were to zoom up to the top of uh, near the peak to peak highway up in the subalpine forest, that's sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. Now these forests uh, typically the climate conditions wouldn't have been very conducive for, for big wildfires every year. It's a cooler, wetter sort of forest type. These are forests characterized by species like spruce, fir, lodgepole pine, species that really have no adaptation to survive fire per se. They have thin bark, but what they do instead is they've evolved adaptations to reseed following those severe fires. So in those types of forests, this, the big, large, severe fires that um, are often very scary to society are actually 
quite within the norm of what these ecosystems are adapted to. And the, uh, fires are scary, like you mentioned, as we and as we've seen in Washington and Oregon. Uh, is is the fire season this year? Is this something that's indicative of what we might expect to see in the future? Yeah. So, and, and first off, you're you're very right. Fires are very dangerous, particularly to human societies. Um, and when we're thinking about wildfire as a threat, risk, danger, we're often talking about more and more people living in fire-prone forested areas. And this presents a real challenge because, as, it, as I just described, these forests have evolved and are adapted to wildfire as part of their naturally process, naturally processing ecosystems. Um, and so we think about the 2015 fire season as a little bit of a crystal ball into what the future might look like in some of our forested ecosystems. Um, we know from studies, there's one study published last year, if we look around in the scientific literature, there's lots of data to support an increase in wildfire activity over the last several decades. There was a, a study that was published last year that shows each year we're seeing an increase in about 400 square kilometers of total burned area in North America. That's an area about equivalent to the size of Denver that's being added oh, wow. on to the area burned every year. Uh, we're also seeing an increase in the number of large fires that are about 1,000 acres. Um, these would be wildfires about the, two times the size of the CU Boulder campus area. Um, by about seven fires per year, we're seeing that increase. And a, a lot of people think about climate change affecting, uh, affecting forests through creating warm, dry conditions that uh, can lead to wildfires. But you also study how climate change affects the ability of forests to recover. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's one of the real frontiers in the science that I'm working on and a lot of my colleagues are working on is um, the things that I explained to you about sort of how these forests have evolved and adapted to wildfire is a really solid foundation on which to understand what might happen in the future. But that foundation is kind of changing as we're looking at a moving target of climate change. And so one of the things that we do in our research is we go into areas that have been followed, uh, where, where large fires have been followed by um, contrasting climate conditions. For example, the 1988 Yellowstone fires were followed by typically or more typical conditions of cooler, wetter conditions. The forests came back great after those really large and severe wildfires. On co in contrast, fires that happened in the year 2000 were followed by three years of protracted drought in the northern Rockies. And so we're going into areas that burned that year and similar years to see what comes back after forests are followed by drought, because that's what we're expecting to see more and more in the future with the best available data on what our climate is going to look like. And as, as a last question, um, given the changing nature of wildfires in the West, how does this affect how we can conserve, you know, important resources like national parks and things like that? Yeah, that's a really important question and one that um, fire scientists like myself always get asked is what should we do about this? Particular to national parks, one thing that I would say is that I think these are areas where it's in our best interest to actually have a hands-off management approach and actually see these places as one area in the world where we can see how nature will respond without human tinkering and active management going on. We have lots of areas. Most of the area around the globe is actually where we do that active management. So let's leave some areas as sort of living scientific laboratories where we can study these things and understand how the, the ecosystems are going to change with climate change. Smokey the bear be darned. That, uh, thank you, Dr. Harvey, for appearing on the show. And that was Dr. Brian Harvey. You can learn more about the wildfires now burning in the United States by visiting the website for the National Interagency Fire Center. The URL is www.nifc.gov.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Zoe Keaton and Daniel May. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Daniel Strain. And I'm Susan Moran.